Hello, welcome to this latest EMA cast. In this series of EMA casts, we're, we're looking at some of the trends and insights that are affecting New Zealand here in 2023 in terms of the changes in the workplace, new ways of, ways of working. Um, so I'm John Bradbury. Um, I am part of the people experience practice here at the EMA. <coughs> and today's guest um, is... Uh, Chris Hewitt, who is the uh, commercial manager uh, for an organisation called uh, Revolutionaries of, of Wellbeing. And um, I'm really pleased to have Chris here today um, to bring us some of his experience about what, what's happening in terms of wellness and wellbeing in the workplaces of New Zealand and to find out about some of the good practices that are happening. So um, maybe Chris, to, to start us off, tell us a, a bit about yourself and maybe tell us a bit about why are you called the revolutionaries <laughs> of wellbeing? It's a good name, isn't it? Um, yeah, thanks for having me, John. Um, so yeah, I'm Chris. I've been with Roe for short way of saying revolutionaries of well-being since the beginning of last year. Prior to that, my background was in professional development, events, most recently in the health, safety and well-being space. Um, in the pandemic, I had one of those sort of career epiphanies that I actually really liked talking to people about health, safety and well-being. And the events were just the delivery mechanism. And I really wanted to, to do more, have those I have more of those conversations full time. So um, I joined Row. Uh, so Row is a community or professional network of around a thousand well-being managers, largely based in New Zealand, but we do have some from from a little bit further afield. And they may be individuals from with an HR background, a health and safety background, uh, an org side background. We've got occupational health nurses, people with lived experiences, or health and safety reps who just want to know more about. Uh, psychosocial risk. Uh, so we do a number of free events, newsletters, give them some professional support. Um, we also have a consulting side of the business, which is focused on well-being strategy, surveying, capability development, that kind of thing. Um, it's a really purpose-driven role. It was one of the uniting things that I found about well-being managers is how passionate they are about what they do, because what they do in many cases is literally life-saving work. Um, Mental health at work has a massive impact uh, on people's lives, the effect of work on health and of health on work. Um, and the people who are usually in charge with improving work are, are generally, you know, or uniformly passionate, inspiring people. Um, and so the name Revolutionaries of Wellbeing actually came out of the pandemic. It was one of the things that came out of a rebrand was um, in the first stages of lockdown, everyone who was in charge of workplace wellbeing were looking to each other to go, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? How can we better support our people? And wellbeing as a profession isn't as um, well-worn as, say, HR or safety or accounting or law. A lot of organisations are just treading their own way based on what they think is going to work. They are the revolutionaries. It's not necessarily us. Um, and... There's no IP in the industry. People are so willing to share what's worked and what hasn't for them, um, ideas, best practice, models, experiences. It's, it's a really cool space to be in. Fantastic. I mean, that sounds like um, you work with a very inspiring, passionate uh, network of, of mm. people. And that what you're looking to do, it sounds like, is very much support and educate them and, yeah. and share share practice around. Um, and, you know, I noticed that you talk about people perhaps in, in your network there um, being from different backgrounds in terms of health and safety, sort of organisational psychology, sort of sort of HR HR managers. Um, 
you know, to, to what extent are you noticing sort of common challenges given these different backgrounds in terms of trying to make this sort of change happen in their organisations? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And it's there's a lot of debate on where well-being should live. And it really it's so context specific because um, if you're not necessarily in a safety critical industry, you may not have a dedicated health and safety resource. So it lives better in HR. Um, if you are an organization where maybe you use you know, ISO 45001 to manage your safety risks, there's an ISO standard for psychosocial risks, 45003. Maybe that's the, the mindset that you want to take into how you manage well-being in the workplace. So it, it better sits with health and safety. Sometimes it just depends on the, the passion and talent and skill set of the people who sit in those respective seats. Um, I, if an organization is large enough, I quite like well-being to sit alongside things like organizational development right? Uh, because those are the kinds of people that can do all the big picture stuff around work design, managing workload, work structures, and that kind of thing where you start to do the big picture change that really makes a difference to well-being in an organization. That's interesting that you start so quickly talking about sort of work design and uh, the sort of work environment in that sense of, mm. of the job because one of the things that came out very strongly in NIB and EMA's wellbeing survey last year was was really around how people were feeling um, stressed in the work, either emotionally or physically, uh, because of the design of the job and particularly because of feeling understaffed at work. Is that your experience too? Yeah, it affects different roles in different industries mm. differently, of course. Um, it's a red-hot market for talent out mm. there, um, yeah. you know, in retail, in contact centre, in a lot of specialist industries as well. There just isn't enough people in New Zealand to mm. to fill all the roles that uh, that are required. And so you find that the work is then spread over fewer people and those individuals have higher workload, which is one of the massive drivers of burnout and, and mm. stress in the workplace. Um, and from managing that, that gets quite challenging because if you're, fun, if you're up against a fundamental brick wall in, in terms of talent attraction, you have to think really broadly about some of the, what, what levers you're going to put in place to manage that. Um, so for a lot of people, it's around having that real focus on retention conversations to stop you know, leaking talent out of your organization and what can you do around that? For some people, it's looking at remuneration, making sure you're market aligned or market leading. For some people, uh, for some organizations, it's around that sense of, or team collaboration and leadership. If you've got great leaders in place and if you've got a great team culture, then people won't want to leave. And, and that attraction peak you can kind of chip away at over time. Um, but yeah, for some industries, it is really, really challenging to get enough people in, in seats, which we know, again, has huge consequences in terms of well-being. Absolutely. And, and within, within the workforce, um, in your experience, are there any particular groups of people that get particularly challenged in terms of the well-being or whose well-being is particularly suffering? There's, there was a, a piece of research from Gallup that I was reading recently which said that middle managers, we, right. we, we, talk, we talk about them at Row as the meat in the sandwich. They're, <laughs> they've got pressures from above from senior leaders to achieve business outcomes and business objectives. They've got all the pressures of managing staff and as, as well as their own, um, as well as their own jobs to do uh, and just the general pressures of life and financial well-being and family pressures and everything else that's going on in the world around us. 
And we've seen that they're getting the squeeze the most because they're trying to do increasingly more with less or more with the same amount of time, I guess. Um, and they have, they don't have enough influence over big picture work design that senior managers do. Um, but they have a lot of the responsibilities for the execution end yep. of, of those uh, big picture plans. So that's where I'm seeing a lot of the squeeze. And so um, when we talk about well-being to organizations, we, we actually that's why we start from a position of self-leadership, yep. knowing your own triggers, knowing your own things that drive your well-being, uh, both your well-being and your stress. Um, you know, are you a person that requires you know, a lot of social time? I'm, I, I get my energy from being around others. Or, um, you know, for me, a good day's well-being, it's not it's not about meditation or gratitude. It's about me pulling on my runners and hitting the pavement for an hour and a half with some some music in my yep. ears, and that gives me that release. Now that that works for me. It may not work for somebody else. Um, and so, yeah, even when we talk about leading with empathy, we actually start that conversation with, well, what does well-being look like for you in your own personal yep. context, and then how can you use that as a jumping-off point for leading with empathy? Okay, so. Some self-awareness, thinking about what strategies are going to work for you and um, how you might better manage your own own well-being. Um, you know, for, for managers, whether they're middle managers or more senior managers, maybe if they're looking at their workforce and thinking, oh, you know, some of the people here, maybe I need to be focusing on well-being. In terms of the negative side of things, are there any sort of things that people should should be looking for and thinking, oh, this is a bit of an indicator that people's well-being isn't so good? Yeah, it's. Um, I suppose that I'm going to preface my answer with saying everyone's allowed to have a bad day. Everyone's allowed to be grumpy from time to time. And, and I, I would caution people against jumping at shadows. So look for longer term trends. But... Um, I would start looking at things like um, just mood, irritability, um, even things they say, like, oh, you know, I just don't, I'm not, you know, if someone says I'm not feeling it today or I've got so much on, I just don't know when I'm going to get time to do all this work and you're hearing it on a repeated basis, that's where you may want to have that conversation that, you know, is everything okay? Is there anything I can do as a manager to help lighten your load or give you some extra support? Um, so there's two ways that conversation can happen. One is if you know I, as a manager, want to take an individual aside and um, you know, have a have a bit of a chat. And sometimes someone may come to you and go, "Look, I, I need some extra support." And and managing that conversation, I think, is it's part of the license to lead that every manager should have. In my view, I think if you want to have the responsibility and the mana and probably the paycheck that comes with being a leader of people, you need to be really, really comfortable having that conversation, uh, having a mental health conversation and knowing what that looks like and knowing how to be empathetic in those circumstances. So, this, I mean, the sort of things you've talked about so far, they don't seem like kind of rocket science to me and sort of some sort of dramatic sort of, sort of thing. They sound like good sort of people management skills and mm. so forth. Um, would your sense of this then be that these have become perhaps even more important given what, what's happened over the last few years? Yeah, 100%. And this is the, um, the irony of a lot of workplace well-being is that it isn't rocket science. It isn't, there's no special model necessarily that you need to follow to, to do it well. Um, one, of the favorite th one of the things that I like to do when, when, I'm, doing, when I'm talking to groups of leaders is uh, we, I, I do an exercise that said, if you think about the best manager that you ever had across your entire career, what would be the words and phrases that you'd use to describe that individual? 
And you get words like authentic, approachable, trustworthy, integrity, you know, all these really humanistic, empathetic qualities. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking to a, a group of, you know, crusty construction workers or, I don't know, office workers or anything in between, you're going to get those same values because that's what people, as humans, we value in, in our leaders. Um, there was a, a, an article in Forbes that came out earlier this year that said um, a relationship for 70% of respondents to a survey, their relationship with their immediate manager was as influential on their subjective well-being as their relationship with their significant other. <laughs> and, I mean, it makes sense. If you think about the number of words most people swap per day with their manager, it's, it's a lot in many cases, and it's as many as their as, as their, their significant other. So it makes sense that it would have be hugely influential on your well-being, but I, I do wonder sometimes that maybe the gravity of that and the sense of responsibility gets a little bit lost with just doing the work yeah, and, yeah. and managing all the process of being a leader. That you go, well, actually, I'm responsible for a third of that person's life if I'm working full-time. And as a leader, I probably have a responsibility to make sure that that experience is as is as good as it can be yeah so you it sounds like you're looking to tap into some very humanistic sort of sort of values in people that yeah. um about their integrity and about thinking of caring for others um one, one of the things i'm conscious of for, for managers is i think management has become more challenging in the last few years particularly because um what we've had is um different ways of working so you know with the the whole lockdown phase where people were working from home we then had people moving back to the workplace maybe people didn't want to move back to the workplace we had hybrid working you hear about things like the four-day work week and yep. so forth these sort of things what, what's your sort of take <laughs> on you know what the impact of all this is on managers and therefore on on well-being yeah it's super interesting at the moment because i mean hybrid working five years ago wasn't Really, we called it flexi work, yeah. but I mean, it took COVID and the technological <laughs> leap to work from home and to everyone have, have those setups. And for that just to generally be acceptable, um, that there really isn't the, the length of evidence and academic study and um, understanding of what best practice actually looks like. We're all learning as we go. And, and it really depends. It's so specific on the industry, the organization, the culture, the requirements of the individual team that... There's no magic number, I oh, will do four on one off or three on two off or whatever it might be. Um, again, I, I did read some research from Gallup recently that said uh, that managers of hybrid teams were reporting higher levels of stress. And I think that's because of the extra juggling that occurs uh, that's required for that manager to manage that team effectively, knowing that some people are in office, some people are out of office. How do you avoid the unconscious bias that you give to people who you are yep. looking across the table from as opposed to that person that's on Zoom um, who's just sort of piping up on, on the other end of the phone occasionally? Um, what do you do when you don't get as much face time with some members of your team compared to others? That requires a degree of cognitive load um, and it's impactful both on the well-being of the, the employee and the manager. So again, it all feeds back into this idea that a lot of managers are, are under a real degree of stress and trying to, it's just another ball they have to juggle in a really challenging environment anyway. 
Oh, yeah, it really adds to that flavour of what is it that's putting middle managers under stress, that sort of meat in the sandwich that you, you kind mm. of described. Um, have you come across in, in your work examples of organisations that you think um, have addressed this well or um, approaches that you think that that sounds like mm. a really good approach that, that will work? Yeah, it, it goes back to, A, getting evidence, I think, yeah. um, understanding what your need is and having some really robust evidence on what people want and what they need and what's going to be meaningful for them. Um, I don't think any organisation is going to say that they've absolutely nailed it because it is such a movable feast. Um, I mean, even to give you a, a recent example, you look at the impact of Cyclone Gabrielle on what that, yeah. what that was in terms of how organisations in that region were forced to work um, and will continue to be affected by for a period of months to come. Um, in terms of a broad approach to hybrid, though, um, I think putting workers in the centre, listening to their voice and understanding um, what's required and what the requirements of the role are, and, and that balancing act is going to require probably a little bit of trial and error, in my view. Uh, I don't think you can expect to one and done it, um, but be willing to be wrong to experiment and to find a mix that works for your organisation. And I think that's the approach that a lot of organisations have taken. The one thing with hybrid, though, there's kind of the, um, uh, I don't know, the one risk that exists with it is it's easy to give this additional flexibility to workers who predominantly work in an office setting. Yeah. If you're the accountant or the IT manager and you can just pack up your laptop and work from home on a Monday and a Tuesday and you're happy. But then if I've got individuals who work maybe in a production setting or a factory setting or something else, and I'm, not, I'm seeing other parts of the organisation get all of this extra flexibility, but I don't see that as well, that's a challenge for them to manage. And maybe that's in partnership with you know, the likes of a union or whether that's in, in partnership with the, you know, those employees themselves. What does flexibility look like in a more coalface context or a more customer-facing context? Um, can parts of your work be, like if you've got a certain amount of admin time per week, can you do that from home? So maybe you don't get that two days off per week, but maybe it's one where you partition off your admin time. Um, so there's that equity piece that you kind of have to keep in the back of your mind when you're looking at hybrid, I think. Very good. So um, what I've heard a lot from you so far, I think, is, you know, you've got to be very um, thoughtful around your own individual work environment uh, think about what are, what are going to be the most the things that you can do and perhaps aren't going to work so well think about your middle managers very very, very clearly and 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 they the stress and strain they might be under um but but within this i mean is there anything that we could start to talk about as this this is sort of good practice these are the things mm. that really as an organization we really ought to make sure in terms of well-being and wellness we really ought to have in place yeah. um i mean the big one and you you may have heard of this one in another context is psychological safety yeah. getting that really well embedded because that by itself doesn't cost there's no extra investment that's required um and i i tend to look at a uh, an iceberg and I use an iceberg analogy for this where a lot of the stuff that we look and point at and think of as workplace well-being it's the tangible stuff it's the it's the oh we've got a subsidized gym membership yeah. or we have this well-being app on our phones or whatever it might be um, my view very strongly is that the stuff that's probably more impactful is is not well-being at first glance. I mean, you said it yourself. It's this all just sounds like good business practice, and I will say exactly, it's that 
psychological safety piece. It's about having manageable workloads, the right amount of control and autonomy over your work as an individual. It's around having a, a leader who leads with empathy. Um, so I would start with that psychological safety piece. I would start to talk to your people and get a sense of whether they uh, feel that they have a healthy relationship with their direct manager, whether they uh, feel like they can speak up and suggest an improvement or ask a question, whether they feel they, like they belong as part of that team, as part of that organisation. Um, that's a really solid place to start that doesn't require any extra investment in well-being as such. It requires you to actually start thinking deeply about what is it like to work in this organisation or what is it like to be a, what's the culture that we've created here? And are there gaps? Are there things that we can do more of? Um, from there, you can then start looking at things like, you know, storytelling around mental health and normalising mental health conversations, uh, which is something that, again, I think that takes time. It takes time and being in a, working in a high trust environment, which again comes back to psychological safety, working in high trust environments. And that's when you not only start seeing the well-being benefits, but you start seeing things like discretionary effort come in yeah. and you start seeing those benefits to retention and attraction and becoming an employer of choice. That's when you start seeing the flow on effects of actually, this is a great place to work. Our people are doing really well, we're thriving. And often, this is the cool thing, when you start doing this really well, it's a really insulating factor if you're working in a really tough environment or if you're working in a, an industry that's really challenged systemically, if you've created a great place to work, if you've got a little bubble there, that is actually a really powerful thing. I'll give you an example. Um, we um, were having a, a chat with um, someone from the veterinary industry um, a little while ago. And they were telling us a story because, and, and the veterinary industry, just for context, is really challenged with well-being, just systemically with the way, uh, the way they work and some of the strains and pressures that come on them. And they were telling us a story about the time they did a, a site visit or a visit to a practice, and there were no clients or customers in at the time. And they opened the door, and all they could hear was absolute gales of laughter coming <laughs> from the staff room, and. They were expecting these people to be all, at the end of their tethers, all stressed out because of just the, the work pressures that they were under. But they loved working around each other so much that despite all the stuff that was going on externally in their world, they just loved being around each other and they loved working with each other. And that was a really protective factor for their own well-being. And again, that didn't cost any money. That wasn't um, you know, signing on to an app or doing this big, training course or anything like that that was just actually creating a great culture that people wanted to work with people wanted to work for sorry it's fantastic you know to sort of come across that in an environment where you weren't expecting yeah mm. i mean great to come across it across it anywhere um so i mean that that's a nice example that sort of brings together the way in which you know this sort of peer support in this and mm. getting getting with a people group of people that you're happy with in the yeah. workplace um so you can imagine from that the sort of benefits you talked about then about people giving greater discretionary effort and staying with the organisation are, go are going to accrue. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And and this is where, you know, when, if I'm ever talking with a senior leader or a group of senior leaders who maybe are more operationally focused and they see the concept of well-being as, well, it's nice to have, but I don't want to sacrifice production yeah. for this. Or, you know, it's just a bit fluffy. Um, I actually reframe it into the concept of sustainable human performance. 
Because that's what it actually is. It's around creating a work environment that is such that you're not burning your people out and that your people can give their best again and again and again and they're going to want to come back and give that discretionary effort. And sometimes it's a, it's a wonderful way of flipping the perspective and they go, oh, no, I understand that. It's, perf- it's a performance. You know, we're talking about getting the most out of our people well-being is the outcome out of all of, you know, if you do the psychological safety thing, if you manage workloads appropriately, if you give people the right amount of control and right amount of resourcing, well-being is an outcome of that. But actually alongside that, it's all of this productivity stuff and this, this cultural stuff and this employee value proposition piece that you, you can add on to that. And if that's the thing that's going to turn heads or if that's the thing that is going to make a difference to that individual, absolutely you can tap into that language. And this isn't spin. I mean, there's, there's huge amounts of research that, that back up that link between well-being and performance and well-being. And that's just not productivity. That's well-being and share market performance and, and all of that kind of thing as well. Yeah. And I mean, what I notice in, in surveys that uh, I see, for example, I was reading Elmo's survey uh, recently, um, it seemed like wellness and well-being was one of the top priorities. I think it's actually second top uh, priority for HR HR professionals this this year. Um, so, for for you, what is the sort of things that you're noticing that HR professionals are sort of asking about and thinking about, given that? There's a few trends that we're starting to see emerge. Um, the first is probably a slow increase in the level of what I call well-being maturity in organizations. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a generalization. Organizations are on a spectrum. There are some yeah. doing amazing, absolutely world-class things. There are some who haven't started their journey. But I am seeing a move away from initiative-based well-being. Mm-hmm. So let's do something for Mental Health Awareness Week or let's do something for pink shirt day or Movember, all of which are fa- fantastic. Yeah, by the way. Yeah. I'm not saying that they're not worthwhile, but there's a degree of maturity that exists beyond that. When you start to move and start to look at not the well-being stuff, but all of the work design and all of the stuff that we've just talked about, that we're starting to see more conversations about. Another interesting trend that I'm observing is an increased focus on financial well-being at the moment which doesn't really come as a surprise given the sort of the general environment that all yeah. businesses are operating in, inflation, cost of living, that kind of thing. You know, what's keeping a lot of people up at night? It's their ability to make their next rent payment, the next mortgage payment, put food on the table. So, uh, and that's a really tricky one for businesses mm. to manage because the answer is, well, you can't just raise raise uh, salaries by 20% or raise wages by 20% across the board, there's my financial well-being done because obviously it's not quite that simple. Um, and so where the workplace, their role in managing financial well-being is a really tricky one to provide the right advice and resourcing and independent guidance and you know, whether it's not necessarily, you know, hosting budgeting seminars in the workplace or uh, making sure, again, that doing those REM reviews to make sure remuneration is market aligned or better. Um, that's one that we're starting to see come up from organizations, just being super conscious of it. Um, another one, probably more um, applicable to larger organizations, is this uh, linking in of well-being with DEI initiatives. Yeah. Um, and that's a, just a 
it makes sense because of that growth of understanding that we all experience well-being very differently based on our demographic, psychographic, lived experience. Um, all of these things that make us unique as individuals also impact our well-being really differently. So there isn't really a, a one-size-fits-all approach that we can make in terms of um, what what's meaningful for well-being. So it's around creating, where possible, these really tailored um really t- tailored ways of accessing well-being, uh, whether that's in a, a culturally sensitive way or that um, just understands that we need different things at different times in our lives. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I get the link with um, diversity and inclusion in mm. the sense of, you know, a lot of the evidence will talk about the people that are most impacted uh, mm. badly in terms of that. And it will talk about it in terms of Maori or, or Pacific people, too. So I, I kind of I, I would get, get that as being uh, a, 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 an area where you mm. sort of pick up in terms of well-being. But listening to you just then, I, I was starting to think, oh, it's, it's almost like um, Chris is kind of flipping it all on its head in a way and so you have these various things like, uh, you know retention mm. uh, recruitment sort of ma- managerial skills uh, diversity and inclusion mm. and actually they, they all come under the header of, of well-being so mm. well-being kind of encompasses all, all these areas yeah I mean you can almost take an employee life cycle approach to yeah. it understanding that different individuals will have different needs at different times in their career or their journey with an organization so what do you what does that look like in recruitment? What does it look like in onboarding? What does it look like from a, an ongoing development, a learning and development sense? Um, if, what, are you do, what are you doing in terms of pathwaying new leaders into the organization? So they're leading with empathy. So you're building those desirable traits, um, desirable ways of working in, in that leadership pathway. And I reflect, and I, I've told the story, well, I, I tell a story frequently that around my own failings as a leader the first time that I was in charge of a team purely because I didn't know what I was doing and I thought that just being a good guy was, was enough when in fact leading, with, leading for well-being is a really discrete skill set and again having the, being able to have those mental health conversations and being able to react appropriately in those times is, is super important. Could you just talk more about that skill set for a manager that a manager needs? Because that sounds like some nice kind of specific things there for managers to do. Yeah, again, it's all it comes back to that concept of leading for psychological safety. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, can are you operating in a high trust environment? Do yeah. you giving are you giving those individuals again again? This is <laughs> I, I, I reflect on the fact that a lot of this isn't rocket science, but we still yes. see you know, people out there just not doing this stuff yeah. because they haven't been taught, you know, it's, it's knowing when to trust your people. Yeah. Um, knowing when knowing when to insert yourself into a conversation, when to let that other person take the shine and take the credit, um, how to manage meetings effectively so people feel like they can contribute to the fullest and, and that balancing act between getting to an outcome and getting a, you know, getting to a successful meeting, but making sure that all those people that are need to be part of that conversation are and that they felt like they have had adequate opportunity and adequate space in order to contribute to their fullest. Um, and then so, yeah, if going back to the previous question around that life cycle, you then take on leadership roles and then, well, what is, you know, in your later career or offboarding, what does that look like? Um, yeah, going through a, cha- a big change program and restructures because again this is one of the real pain points that we know that 
people are at real heightened risks to their own well-being, increased risk of burnout and stress is around big change programs, whether that is an acquisition program or a merger, um, or even just an internal restructure. You know, you, you, there are risks to an individual's financial well-being if their job is potentially at risk. Um, often their projects change and maybe, you know, something that they've taken a lot of ownership of and um, pride over over the past year is either getting mothballed or somebody else is getting uh, made responsible for it. So they're feeling like their purpose has maybe changed. Um, even just lack of role clarity. Um, mm. The health and safety executive, who are the basically the English version of WorkSafe New Zealand, they release what's called the stress management standards. They did this a number of years ago, and they talked to six factors which drive workplace stress. And their um, workload, so, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, the, the role, the work, yeah. how, and that encompasses not just workload, but also the demands of the role. So if you're working on a shift or, again, if you're a, an emergency department nurse at a hospital, your work is intrinsically stressful. Um, control, so how much micro and macro control over you, how you do your job, and that's a really role-specific one. Uh, the third is uh, support, so you know, how much executive support, resourcing, do you have the tools to do your job effectively? Uh, relationships, and that's that interpersonal relationship at a team level, and your relationship with your immediate manager. How is bad behavior dealt with? Do you have that civility and respect piece at your yeah. workplace? And then the other two, which are really specific to those change environments, are role clarity. So if your job scope or job role changes over time, again, you know, a lot of people, they, they report being stressed because, well, we've, we're down two people in the yes. team and I'm, I'm now doing three roles. And in some ways I'm reporting to three different people now and I have competing priorities and everything's urgent and that's driving my stress. Um, and then the, that last one is, is change. Not the existence of change per se, but how much agency and how much say and how much voice you have in a change process and, and how well it's managed. Yeah, so, so, so you, you're talking there about, about change. I heard that several times in, the, in, the, in that conversation. And, you know, clearly the last few years have seen a lot of change in the workplace because of outside factors, COVID and its tail, um, we've had, um, you know, more recent recent weather events that so you, you you mentioned, um, and uh, you know, is 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 there a sense that these things have sort of accelerated um, this focus on well-being or made it more important in organisations? Right? Yeah, I think COVID was a a great leveler, yeah, yeah. Um, and you may have heard this before. I mean, you had you know the CEO who was trying to work off their kitchen table, you know, yeah. homeschooling their kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, all of that kind of thing. And the same way as, you know, your frontline worker who was in level four lockdown at the same time. And I think that was the real, that was the turning point when we go, actually, we really need to, you know, everyone is struggling. We need to look at how we're managing our team's mental health. The challenge for, for organizations and New Zealand as a whole is how can we keep that momentum, you know, the tides yes. in and how can we cement in those gains that we made around awareness, around, um, normalizing conversations on mental health to actually use that momentum to create really great workplaces across the board. I mean, that's the challenge for all of us, I guess. Um, you know, but for me and the outside in and for individuals working in organizations. Yeah. So, 
you know, we talk a lot about, about New Zealand, obviously, and our sort of unique experience the last few years. I mean, obviously, a lot of that happened outside in the world as well. Do you look overseas, for examples, of what's happening in other countries? And do you have a sense of how's New Zealand kind of pacing in the kind of wellness space versus other countries? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's a few different examples mm-hmm. I'll give. So we, we recently actually did a focus group over in the UK just to see how, because there's a lot of really great workplace research that comes out of the UK. There's some fantastic institutions and some fantastic stuff that goes out there. And um, so we had a chat with a, a group of well-being managers that came from the UK just to sort of take the temperature of them. They actually looked to us. <laughs> and in terms of what we're doing in well-being, which I thought was really cool. And I'm guessing that a lot of that came out of things like the well-being budget that Treasury yeah. did, and, and that got a lot of international press. Um, a lot of organisations overseas in the US and the UK, um, their workplace well-being programmes are based around insurance benefits. Yeah. And so it tends to be really initiative-based. Like, okay, we, we've identified that we're getting a lot of claims on musculoskeletal, so we're going to do a physical health thing to manage that risk, or we're going to uh, do something. It's that what's the next thing? Is it menopause? Is it neurodiversity? Is it financial well-being? It tends to be very um, bitty, I guess, without this really strategic lens that they're throwing over it in terms of how can we create better places to work. Um, conversely, over in Australia, they are doing some really interesting stuff as well over there where they've, they're bringing in codes of practice to manage psychosocial risk. Yeah. Uh, they've been rolled out in, I think, most states now. There may be a couple of stragglers. And off the top of my head, I can't remember who they are. But they've broadly been adopted at this stage. Um, now, if I'm gazing into my crystal ball, mm-hmm. um, I would guess that that may happen over here in the next two years with a lot of stuff. Australia tends to kind of do um, do something like with the Health and Safety at Work Act and then 18 months, two years down the track, yeah. it gets adopted here in New Zealand. And that puts a positive duty on organisations to manage psychosocial risk the same way that they are managing their physical safety risk. So if you've got those plans in place, if you're taking that really risk-based approach to managing safety risks, it's actually not too great of a mental leap to take that same approach and use them for your psychosocial risks. And I think separating it out into its own piece of legislation or its own code of practice actually really emphasizes how important it is. And the fact is for many organizations, their biggest risk of their people isn't a physical risk. It's not a fall from height or anything like that. It's actually you know, the top four inches. Oh, interesting. Yes, that's a, that's a great perspective on it because that, that matters to us all in yeah. whatever job we're doing. That's that's going to be important. And that person that we take home and how we behave at home in the wider community is affected too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, we all... We, it's that whole thing where, you know, you leave your problems at your door at the door. Well, <laughs> everybody knows, well, you don't. You go on site, you're the same person, even if you're working. And um, and there's actual there's physical safety impacts of that as well. Yeah. And I'll get, and, uh, to give you an example, I mean, let's say, you know, take Bill. Bill's going through a, a nasty separation with his wife. He drives a forklift around a warehouse. Now, he hasn't been sleeping much because it's been, it's been such a horrible experience. He's probably been drinking more than he should. And he's driving around in a forklift on your site. And you're telling me that person's mental state doesn't have a, a physical safety impact or potential for a physical safety impact so again we we carry all the stuff around with us every day um it changes every day some days 
mean, you've probably experienced, you know, some days you get out of bed and you're a, a box of birds. Some days you get out of bed and, you know, you've got the blues because you just have that day. Um, and, you know, that doesn't change yeah. when I go to work. Absolutely, yeah. So we, we bring the same person to work as we take, we take home. Um, just now you talked about looking in a crystal ball mm. at sort of, uh, you talked about in the context of legislation coming from Australia, possibly to here and positive effect that might have. I just wonder sort of finally, sort of fi final sort of question for you is if you were to look in that crystal ball and look further ahead to mm -hmm. say the end of this decade or 2030, sort of what would you like to be happening? What do you hope will be happening in terms of wellness and well-being at work um, that perhaps isn't happening now or will be happening more by then? What would be the norm by, by 2030 in your ideal world? In the ideal world, I think it almost gets normalised to the point where well-being isn't necessarily its own standalone thing over here. It's just the way that we work. We create work in such a way that it's actually embedded in what we do and how we design work and how we design workplaces and how we treat each other. I mean, it's not about, you know, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's about pushing them off, not pushing them off the wall in the first place. You know, and, and I think that's where we're starting to see that. Um, Again, EAPs are fantastic and they're really valuable for the people that need them in those moments. But wouldn't it be great if we were creating working environments where people didn't feel that they needed to use those services in the first place? Fantastic. Oh, that's, a, that's a really sort of nice, nice point to end. And obviously, I'd like to thank you very much for coming today and, and sharing your experiences with us. And I think also, um, you know, what you've brought is a certain passion, I think, to this as well, which, which is really great to, to hear. Oh, and um, I'm sure will help sustain us all as, as we try and make things better. Oh, look, it's the reason I get out of bed every morning, because, I mean, the, the work that people who are in charge of well-being do, it, uh, as I said at the beginning, it literally saves lives. It literally makes such a big difference to the people in workplaces. So it's a fantastic space to be in. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic, Chris. That's a great, great thought that we kind of started on and ended on it too. So <laughs> Full circle. Thank you very much for that. Um, thanks very much to everyone that's watched or listened to this EMA cast. Um, what we would hope is that there's been some practical tips in there that perhaps you can apply yourself or, or think about uh, for your workplace. And um, we look forward to talking to you uh, in further EMA casts. Thank you all very much.